just just while you're getting settled, can I ask, when you look here, what do you see? Petals? When you look here, what do you see? Circles? And depending on what you look at and where you focus, it's the same wall. It's, it's always been that didn't change. But what you look at and how you focus on it can determine what you're actually seeing. And that ability to communicate and share with each other and to be open because in my old nature, there's a flower. No, it's a circle. No, it's not what you're talking about. It's a flower or their petals. So the, that's all I can see. So the focus must be right. So I must be right. So it'll be petals. Is there a humility in my heart to say, well, how are you seeing a circle? Because I can only see petals. You know, that's something that um, I think that I really got when I was in Cambodia with Greg and with Anne and the, and the, and the others when we were over there. To realise in order to see what the Lord was wanting to show, I had to have a change of posture and a change of focus to be able to see what was being explained to me and spoken to me. And I had to humble myself to be able to hear and to be ready to move. And as I did that, and that posture, I've got to tell you, that posture was on my face and on my knees. That was a posture of saying, Lord, show me what, I, what I'm not seeing. And in, in Cambodia, I remember distinctly as the Lord was doing a, an amazing work in, in Anne, just revealing his love to her. And we were talking about some of the things of uh, what was going on here and how the Lord's uh, leading us into a deeper relationship with him and this, this message of the bride and of the kingdom, the personal relationship and the growth that's happening within and not by works but by the living word that as, I, as that was being opened to me and the Lord was revealing at that time he was speaking specifically to me about uh, coming into the Holy of Holies we can come boldly to the throne of grace because the curtain that separated us, which was Christ himself, has been torn, rent in two, that we can now access and come directly into the Father's presence. And he was showing me this. That it was, it's massive. It's, it's not like a, a pathetic little room. You may come into my room. It's a massive, massive um, holy of holies. It's, it's where God is. As he was sharing this, and as I was speaking, I was saying, I can't see it completely, hun, but I can see it. And Anne was saying, well, I, I can't see it. And I was sitting in the room, sitting on a chair or something, whatever, and Anne was on the bed over there, and there's a wall, and there's a door. And I said, hun, but I can see it, like I can see the door. And Anne said, well, what door? I said, the door that comes into here. And then I realised, well, she can't see it. I said, Hunt, in order to see the door, you're going to have to change your posture. You're going to have to move in order to be able to see. And it was just, it was just dropping. In order to see what, what is being spoken, what, what the Lord is speaking through Greg, in order for me to see and for us to see, we must be prepared to be humble and to change our focus on what we can see to what has been spoken to us about something that we can't see, to, to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I trust, I trust in those that you've set in front of me. I can see a life, I can hear a life that you're speaking about. And so I pray and I seek you. I know you to a measure that you're faithful, that you love me. So I'm going to trust that you will show me what I can't see right now. And the one speaking, and I, I can encourage us all in this, I know that as elders, um, every one of us 
are speaking from a place of walking this. That, that song that we're singing, or the songs that we're singing tonight, you know, to, to speak of that and to sing from a place of what I'm singing or a place, well, I hope it's reality, to a place of, well, I believe it can be a reality for me and so I'll sing that prophetically, to singing those songs as a place of I know that's a reality to a measure and I'm coming into it to a greater measure, whatever that may be. That as elders, that all of us have walked and are walking through fire to a measure that has forged and formed something within us, that is alive. And so I know from my own perspective, even for Anne and I today, that there was, we're continuing to walk through something that we've had to face today, which is in the fire. And if I cannot say that I'm standing on the solid rock, on the foundation of Christ, what hope have I really got to give those who are in the fire to, to give them something? to come out. I'm like a guy in a ship that sees some guy shipwrecked or floating on the lifeboat or something to say, come on here, come on my ship, it's all good. And he's looking up and going, oh, it's a big ship, that'll be safe. Oh, the Titanic, that'll be great. It's got to be something that's solid and firm and real and true. Otherwise, whatever I'm on, it's just as bad as whatever the other guy's on. And I've discovered this this life that the Lord is talking about, the freedom, the stuff that we've faced through through our lives that is forged through fire. And I, I think because it's perhaps a smaller group tonight, and I hope that after I've shared what we're going to share tonight, that the, some of the, the um, discussion will be on a far more intimate level. Because I ho- my hope, my prayer is that it's to give hope, to face reality for ourselves, to say actually there is a greater reality and I'm, I'm heading for that. It may be there to a measure and maybe more. Or maybe hearing that hope and that life in someone else is going to actually, no, there's a change that needs to take place in my own life. And as Anne and I have experienced life together for the last 31 years, married, we've walked through um, the the loss of Anne, the first baby that we had. Now it was four months, about four months. Now, I, I know that hit me harder than I would ever have expected. I remember a few weeks or so after and it miscarried. We were around at a friend's place and we were having tea and they were another Christian couple. And, and I said, oh, I don't feel very well all of a sudden. And I just went and lay down on the couch. And I was just lying there for a bit. And then I just broke. I just started weeping and wailing and crying. Now I know that what was happening in here couldn't, couldn't be contained anymore. And it had to come out. And through that experience, finding the grace of God and the love of God being poured out to me in my brokenness, I didn't realize that I had attached so much to, to this life. But that was a, a big walk. There was all sorts of not-so-nice stuff that, that happened through that. But God's gracious and his loving kindness carried us through. 
Anne's brother died tragically, and I may have shared that, and people may or may not know. He, he was 15, 16, and he, he was electrocuted on a school yachting trip. He'd been with us that night before. The next day, he, he was dead. And the experiencing of God's love at that time was so tangible and something that I can't put into words but have experienced. This, this unknowable love, how do you know it? He wants us to know this unknowable love. Well, the way that you know it is through something to have to experience it in. And I and we experienced that unknowable love at that time as he just lifted and carried us through to another greater measure. All the time, this work of, of, of work within me that even into the last few years here has culminated with a greater understanding and a greater releasing to the Lord of a transformation of my mind into his likeness and image and a greater depth of knowing his heart in all of this. Through to Anne's sister being diagnosed with a, a brain tumour. And just recently she passed away, which is all part of a consequence of that over the last 25 odd years. My brother, we lost our house at this time, so we won't go into all the dramas around that. Um, we, when we moved down here 11 years ago, nearly, 10 and a half years ago, effectively we might have gone to Africa because we didn't know anybody in Wellington. Miles away from everybody that we did know and everything that we knew was comfortable towards us or for us. But the Lord led us. Well, not long after coming down, my brother went mysteriously missing and then they found his body about a week later. And all of this time, the grace of God is carrying us through. And I shared with someone today that when 32 odd years ago, when the Lord touched my heart, and led me in an understanding to commit my heart to him, that commitment was a commitment. I won't. I've decided to follow Jesus. Though no one join me, still I will follow. There's a song for you, Steph. <laughs> Self-control right now is taking over, despite what the brain is crying out loud. <laughs> You know, and so no one join me. Still, I will follow because I know you to be true. Now, that was a commitment based on, I don't know what, stubbornness probably more than anything else. But now there's been a transformation work that the Lord's been doing within my heart, within my mind, that I, I, I know that there's a steadfastness that as we face the lion's den, it proves the will of God within me that gives me strength and gives me hope that I pray as an encouragement to each one of you that as I read out some verses tonight that you'll be able to grab hold of that and receive what the Lord's saying in your own heart to recognize in yourself that was the hardest thing for me to do. Sorry, Vera. It doesn't work quite the same when I've got using a tablet. <laughs> to look into the mirror for those that are listening I'm now looking into the Bible <laughs> to look into the mirror of God's word and recognize myself it's easy to read scripture and transfer that to those people but to hear and sense the spirit of God saying son that's you and about to accept that and go, oh my God, here I am. Here's another good song for you, Steph. <laughs> I can come no other way. Take me deeper into you. Make my flesh life melt away. Know that one? Take me deeper into you. Make my flesh life melt away. Make me like a precious stone, crystal clear and finely honed. Oh, yeah. 
yeah, not so much on that. <laughs> the finely hones on an abrasive <laughs> stone. So in that has been this, this journey of transformation that I know now, I know his love, I know him. I'm not saying know everything about him, but I know him. I know Father's heart is turned towards me. I know his hand is out. We sing that song. The Father's arms are open wide. I know the love that he's pouring into my heart and the purpose for which he's calling me, calling me to him for an eternal purpose. And that that sure steadfastness of knowing that is not just for me to go, well, I'm all right. It's because I can know that that then I can reach out and be on a solid foundation, not a Titanic, or not a sandy beach, but on a solid rock to say there is hope. And in the fire today, I heard someone say something that that was like a, wow, thank you. Thank you for that, Father. And that's that was someone else who years ago had seen us as being less than loving and kind and helpful to be having their eyes open to seeing in the light that we were actually offering love and hope and salvation for them. Now the funny thing is, we actually never moved. It was their perception now of being able to see what was there all the time. But we needed to be on that solid rock in order to be there all the time, otherwise we're sinking sand as well. So all of that was just as an introduction to something that I just felt the Lord, or believe the Lord was leading for me to do tonight. And I, I had said to Greg earlier on, I don't really feel there's anything really pressing on my heart. Not There is for the 28th of um, August, but, but not right for tonight. I said, well, that's right, just... I'll just wait on the Lord, see what happens. So I said, okay. I said, I'm, I'm sure I could drum something up and, and I'm sure I'll be able to write up something, but I'm, I've, I don't want to share anything other than what he's really doing within me. That's why. Poor <laughs> Rochelle didn't get anything from me. So it wasn't till later in the week as I was reading this and I was... Um, the Lord led me to read these verses or these chapters specifically in this version. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to close your Bibles and to turn your <laughs> all your electronic media off. Oh, you can take notes. I'll let you take notes. Just remember, Holy Spirit's watching. <laughs> I think it's important, the reason why the reason why I say this is because I think it's important for you to hear. So I'm going, going to read Romans chapters 5, 6, 7 and 8 out of the message version. It's not a version I normally read and I wouldn't normally encourage people to go away and read the message. It's a very conversational tone um, version of scripture but again part of it is when you focus on something what do you see if I'm a, allow you to change your focus just slightly you may be able to see something that you're missing so not that I'm writing off the message clearly not because I'm going to read from it tonight if it's a very devotional or very uh, or more precise study uh, that you're doing, then I'd encourage you perhaps to use a a different version than the message. But sometimes there's clarity given just to go back and go, oh, okay, what's how's that putting it? There's, there's another version I read on here called the Easy English, which is probably not too dissimilar to this. That goes, mm, okay, that was very basic, but it actually put it quite succinctly and quite clearly. And then I'll go back to what I normally read either the King James, the NASB, or the NIV. 
So what I'd ask you to do is just to listen. The questions that come up after this are there to help stimulate perhaps what you may have heard in this. And it's this moving, walking from death to life to freedom and to recognise that this is what we're in, a life of freedom. And as elders, we, we talk and we pray and we hold this fellowship in our hearts before the Lord. And we see those who are living life to a greater measure in freedom. We see those who are struggling to live a life in freedom that are still seem to be walking, as it were, in a dead life, wanting and struggling to live in the life of freedom. So that's why the questions are there as, as they are, that will be passed around. And my prayer is, it's, I, hope, I hope you can hear my heart. It's not to say you're good or bad or indifferent. It's to challenge it in the mirror. Where am I at that I might actually understand and receive from you, Lord, that living word work done within me that I can walk in that life? <clears throat> so I'm just going to read these chapters out. Romans chapter 5. By entering through faith into what God has always wanted to do for us, to set us right with him, make us fit for him, we have it all together with God because of our master, Jesus Christ. And that's not all. We throw open our doors to God and discover at the same moment that he has already thrown open his door to us, we find ourselves standing where we always hoped we might stand, out in the wide open spaces of God's grace and glory, standing tall and shouting our praise. There's more to come. We continue to shout our praise, even when we're hemmed in with troubles, because we know how troubles can develop passionate patience in us, and how that patience in turn forges the tempered steel of virtue, keeping us alert for whatever God will do next. In alert expectancy, such as this, we're never left feeling short-changed. Quite the contrary. We can't round up enough containers to hold everything God generously pours into our lives through the Holy Spirit. Christ arrives right on time, to make this happen. He didn't and doesn't wait for us to get ready. He presented himself for his sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for, and we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice, but God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to him whatsoever. Now that we are set right with God by means of the sacrificial death, the consummate blood sacrifice, there is no longer a question of being at odds with God in any way. If, when we were at our worst, we were put on friendly terms with God by the sacrificial death of his son, now that we're at our best, just think of how our lives will expand and deepen by this means of his resurrection life. Now that we have actually received this amazing friendship with God, We are no longer content to simply stay in plodding prose. We sing and shout our praises to God through Jesus, the Messiah. You know the story of how Adam landed us in this dilemma we're in. First sin, then death. And no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. But the extent of the disturbance was not clear until God spelled it out in detail to Moses. So death, 
this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did by disobeying a specific command of God still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead-end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous, life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was death, was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes, sovereign life, in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting everything right, that one man Jesus Christ provides. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us into all this trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers, but sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. So, what do we do? Keep on sinning? Oops. Keep on sinning? So God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? That is what happened in baptism. When we went under the water, we left the old country of sin behind. When we came up out of the water we entered into the new country of grace, a new life in a new land. That's what baptism into the life of Jesus means. When we are lowered into the water, it's like the burial of Jesus. When we are raised up out of the water, it's like the resurrection of Jesus. Each of us is raised into a light-filled world by our Father so that we can see where we're going in our new grace-sovereign country. Could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ, a decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer it sins every beck and call. What What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was a signal to the end of death as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him. But alive, he brings God down to us. From now on, think of it this way. Sin speaks a dead language that means nothing to you. God speaks your mother tongue. 
and you hang on every word. You're dead to sin and alive to God. That's what Jesus did. That means you must not give sin a vote in the way you conduct your lives. Don't give it the time of day. Don't even run little errands that are connected with that old way of life. Throw yourself wholeheartedly and full time. Remember, you've been raised from the dead into God's way of doing things. Sin can't tell you how to live. After all, you're not living under that old tyranny any longer. You're living in the freedom of God. So since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, can we do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourself to the ways of God and the freedom never quits. All your lives you let sin tell you what to do. But thank God you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. I'm using this freedom language because it's easy to picture. You can readily recall, can't you, how at one time the more of you did just what you felt like doing, not caring about others, not caring about God, the worse your life became and the less freedom you had. And how much different is it now as you live in God's freedom, your lives healed and expansive in holiness? As long as you did what you felt like doing, ignoring God, you didn't have to bother with right thinking or right living or right anything for that matter. But do you call that a free life? What did you get out of it? Nothing you're proud of now. Where did it get you? A dead end. But now that you've found you don't have to listen to sin tell you what to do and have discovered the delight of listening to God telling you, what a surprise. A whole, healed, put together, right life right now with more and more of life on the way. Work hard for sin your whole life and your pension is death. But God's gift is real life, eternal life, delivered by Jesus, our Master. You shouldn't have any trouble understanding this, friends, for you know all the ins and outs of the law, how it works and how its power touches only the living. For instance, a wife is legally tied to her husband while he lives. But if he dies, she's free. If she lives with another man while her husband is living, she's obviously an adulteress. But if he dies, she's quite free to marry another man in good conscience with no one's disapproval. So, my friends, this is something like what has taken place with you. When Christ died, he took that entire rule-dominated way of life down with him and left it in the tomb, leaving you free to marry a resurrection life and bear offspring of faith for God. For as long as we lived that old way of life, doing whatever we felt we could get away with, sin was calling most of the shots as the old law code hemmed us in, and this made us all the more rebellious. In the end, all we had to show for it was miscarriages and stillbirths. But now that we're no longer shackled to that domineering mate of sin and out from under all those oppressive regulations and fine print, we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. Just break away for a moment. The the reference here clearly is to the to the Torah and to the rules and regulations that they uh, that as Jews they knew about, but it can equally apply to the rules and the law that we set on our own lives 
either just, you know, my own truth and my own law, this is what I'll do and this is the way it is and this is how it'll be, that's separate from God and is no freedom, or in traditional Christianity and rules and regulations that have set, been set in place that can be just as hemming in and are not by faith. So we're free to live a new life in the freedom of God. But I can hear you say, if the law code was as bad as all of that, it's no better than sin itself. That's certainly not true. The law code had a perfect, legitimate function. Without its clear guidelines for right and wrong, moral behaviour would be mostly guesswork. Apart from the succinct surgical command, you shall not covet, I could have dressed covetousness up to look like a virtue and ruined my life with it. Don't you remember how it was? I do perfectly well. The law code started out as an excellent piece of work. What happened though was that sin falling short of the righteous standard, that was me by the way, that sin found a way to pervert the command into a temptation, making a piece of forbidden fruit out of it. The law code, instead of being used to guide me, was used to seduce me. Without all the paraphernalia of the law code, sin looked pretty dull and lifeless. And I went along without paying much attention to it. But once sin got its hands on the law code and decked itself out in all its finery, I was fooled and I fell for it. The very command that was supposed to guide me into life was cleverly used to trip me up, throwing me headlong. So sin was plenty alive and I was stone dead. But the law code itself is God's good and common sense, each command sane and a holy counsel. I can already hear your next question. Does that mean I can't even trust what is good, that is the law? Is good just as dangerous as evil? No again. Sin simply did what sin is so famous for doing. Using the good as a cover to tempt me to do what would finally destroy me. By hiding within God's good commandment, sin did far more mischief than it could ever have accomplished on its own. I can anticipate the response that is coming. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what is best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more. For if I know the law, but still can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who, who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. 
He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions, where I want to serve God with all my heart and mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Chapter 8. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of the spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. I love the way this is worded. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant in his son. Jesus, in his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once for all. The law code, weakened as it always was, by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Remember, it's the work, the living word, that it is work within us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcomed him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing for you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life with his life, with his spirit living in you, and your body will be as alive as Christ's. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do it yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's Spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurous, expectant, greeting God with a childlike, What's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who He is. We know who we are, Father and children. And we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. 
We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. All around us we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. Meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. He does our praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs, our aching groans. He knows us far better than we know ourselves knows our pregnant condition, and keeps us present before God. That's why we can be so sure that every detail in our lives of love for God is worked into something good. God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape our lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The Son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. We see the original and intended shape of our lives there in him. After God made that decision of what his children should be like, he followed it up by calling people by name. After he called them by name, he set them on a solid basis with himself. And then, after getting them established, he stayed with them to the end gloriously completing what he had begun. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose if God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son? Is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us? Who was raised to life for us? In the presence of God at this very moment, sticking up for us? Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and God's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble. Not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks. They picked us off one by one, the scripture says. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. It is so full of life, those verses, those chapters. And my question, because it's a challenge that I've questioned myself and and I've realised to a measure the answer to this is no, this question. 
Do I have to struggle with sin? With sin life? And the answer to that is no. Jesus has trod on that. And his life is in me. So if I'm struggling with sin, am I dragging around a dead body with me? Because I'm no longer dead in sin. I'm now alive in Christ. So to the measure that I'm pressing in and focusing not on myself, but on God. Now what's the message that that the Lord's been bringing to us through Greg? If we focus on Christ, if we look at Christ, Greg, stop leading them, them to the lost. Lead them to me. If I focus on him, not me, I will come in and experienced greater and greater measures of life in him, no longer held back by sin, but now living in life. Father, I pray that that word, not just the the text on the screen or the ink on the page, but the living word, your word, the message that you're, you're, you're bringing forth, that that message, Lord, is received in the heart. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, in taking that word, Holy Spirit, reveal Father's heart to everyone who's hearing and heard these words. Reveal the Father's heart to them. And Holy Spirit, the living word, alive and active, within each person, transforming and changing the mind into this life and the likeness of Jesus Christ to a greater measure. So Father, I thank you and I bless you for your word. Amen.